Before we start, thank you for taking us to the top five business news podcasts in India. Also, thank you and welcome to our latest subscribers from the Nasimunji Institute of Management Studies and Mudra Institute of Communications or MICA in Ahmedabad. And now, on to the core report. Good morning. It's Monday, the 21st of August, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. India's first semiconductor chip company starts production to launch commercially next month, a core report exclusive. Why India's urban poor are more hit by food inflation and even spices are not spared. With Crystal Ratings Deepthi Deshpande. A nuclear scientist and heiress wins a gender battle at the Murugappa group. The Sabzi Mandi that must be the government's Ministry of Agriculture. Hmm, even the World Bank wants people to come back to work. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. And breaking now, India's first chip manufacturer gets going. Delhi-based Sahasra Electronics is set to commercially launch the first made-in-India memory chips next month. This would also mean that Sahasra's chips would launch before Micron, which has announced a $2.7 billion semiconductor assembly and testing plant scheduled to roll by the end of next year. Sahastra has traditionally produced a range of electronics equipment, including pen drives and solid-state drives used either inside or outside computers for memory storage. The present semiconductor project got going in January 21, and test runs have been taking place since March. In its current form, Sahastra is more an outsourced semiconductor assembly and test or OSAT company, which means it assembles and packages chips for other brands after importing the wafers. Sahastra had originally qualified for a 25% capital subsidy under the Scheme for Promotion of Manufacturing of Electronic Components and Semiconductors, SPECs, or called SPECs. And as of late last year, some 32 applications with a total project cost of around 11,000 crore rupees and with the potential to create 32,000 jobs were approved under the SPEC scheme. Sahastra currently has two printed circuit board fabrication facilities and also a LED lighting facility, among others. And of course, now the semiconductor assembling plant. I caught up with Varun Manwani, director of Sahastra Electronics, and began by asking him to define what his company would bring to market next month and where it stands in the chip making ecosystem. Okay, so Sahastra Semiconductors is part of the overall Sahastra group. This was conceived in the year 2020. So basically a greenfield project incorporated in July 2020. And over the last three years, we have built up the entire facility, ground up, brought in absolutely brand new machinery, brought in, you know, whatever we call as knowledge. As you know, in this space, knowledge is very limited within India. So we brought all of that into the space in the last two and a half, three years. And so now we're really ready to get started. We did some trial activities in March of 2023. But the full-fledged production starts in September, that is next month. Right. So what exactly are you going to manufacture? And uh, how is this different from, let's say, some of the other products that you make? You make flash drives and solid-state drives which go inside computers or flash drives which we use outside, like a USB stick and so on. Okay. So this is uh, different from at least three points of view. Point number one is this is absolute backward integration. So we make flash drives, we make modules such as SSDs. But today when we make flash drives or we make modules, 
we buy the flash IC and the controller IC, which now we will not be buying, rather we will be packaging. If I take two steps back, the raw material for our industry, which is semiconductors, is basically, as everybody may have heard of, it's silicon wafer. Now, silicon wafer, you know, is part of the overall semiconductor ecosystem, which is basically built at a fab, something which, you know, the government is wanting to bring in. However, the upstream of a fab is consumption of, let's say, OSATs. And OSATs are companies like us who will consume the wafer that is built at a fab. So when we consume the wafer, we are packaging them into devices. Now, in our case, Actually, not only memories, we will be getting into some other ICs as well, such as QFN, uh, DFN packages, SOIC packages. But to begin with, we are focusing on uh, memory. And memory overall happens to be 30% of the overall semiconductor industry. So it's a very important part of the overall semiconductor ecosystem. So coming back to how are we different is that... Um, Today, instead of only building a memory module or a SSD or a USB, which had flash and the controller coming from outside as a packaged device, we're back over integrating to package it in our own facility. And uh, where would you be importing the wafer from? And is that something that is going to come from different places or one place? See, quite frankly, you know, this is a very, very limited industry. There are really only five fabs or five brands in the world who control this ecosystem or, you know, let's say who are, uh, who are the major players in this ecosystem. So it is really, from a country standpoint, it is uh, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, and, you know, a little bit of the US, you know, Micron being there. In terms of manufacturing of the wafer, it basically happens through these brands called Micron, Western Digital, Toshiba, which now is known as Kioxia. You have SK Hynix from uh, Korea, and you also have Samsung. So these are the main five entities. So our wafer will be coming from any one of these five entities, depending upon availability. And what is the likely applications at this point for what you will assemble in India? So let me first start with that. Basically, in the short term, that's when we start next month. For the next 12 to 15 months, we'll be focusing on two packages, which are slightly lower end. That is the micro SD card and the COB, which is also known as a, a SIP. What's that, uh, Varun? Can you expand that? Right. Uh, an SIP, which stands for System in Package. These devices will go into your USB drives or thumb drives. Now, we start with these two. And then over the next 15 to 18 months, we will get into the slightly higher and advanced versions of memory packages, which are known as uh, EMMCs or EMCPs, micro CPs, etc. Basically, if I were in this sequence to explain the applications, so today micro SD cards, which used to be a huge industry, let's say four or five years back, when the mobile phones used to have external memory, you know, they had very, very large numbers. But over the last few years, as you know, the phone companies and um, tablet companies have brought these memories into the phone, the micro SD card application has, or rather the volumes have gone down. However, the applications are still quite a bit. So they still get used in feature phones. Then the market is CCTV cameras. Then you have high-end cameras. Uh, you have drones. You have, for example, there is a company who is making your beacons for your smart lights. So they also need local storage. So anybody who needs local storage, that's the market. 
Now, when you get into the higher end product, like as I mentioned, EMMC, uh, EMCP, uh, etc., kind of devices, they get utilized in SSDs. They get utilized in phone memory, tablet memory, TVs, TV boxes, and that market is just is booming. It's expanding. So the demand for those products are you know going to be very high numbers. And with the recent announcements by the government, the sky is the limit in terms of the market. And the memory that you spoke of in the context of TVs and set-top boxes, so that's about, you're saying is about 15 to 18 months away. And in the immediate term is the more local storage, like you mentioned, for CCTV cameras or drones or so on. That's right. Now, when I say 15 to 18 months away, it is basically because not that we do not have access to the technology or we don't have the knowledge, but there is a process to get it set up. And, you know, when we manufacture the micro SD cards and COBs, there's a learning of the process. Uh, there are a lot of tools that you need to develop. You need to bring in a lot more equipment, gain process knowledge, and stabilize your yield. Uh, that's the key, really. Also, as I said, you know, as the government policies kick in, which are extremely favorable today to manufacturing in India and semiconductor packaging as well, those policies, as they kick in, the volumes will grow locally. When I say locally, means the volumes already exist, but everything gets imported. So with that import substitution as a possibility, the market will expand. Additionally, the ecosystem for everything in semiconductor, you know, does not exist here. So that also sometimes leads to delays, if I might use that word. And that's why we're saying 15 to 18 months. Now, depending upon the ecosystem maturity, there is a possibility to get it done faster. But this is the tentative time in that we look at. And a lot of people have been talking about, I mean, media, I guess, and maybe people like me have been talking about Micron and uh, setting up a big investment. So uh, I'm assuming their project, when it starts rolling, will be larger, but it's still uh, some time away compared to yours. Um, so first of all, Micron coming in is good news for all of us, right? As Indians, as the industry, because it brings in majority to the ecosystem. Sahasra is a new player. So obviously, with us being a new player, our capacity, our capability is limited to some extent. Micron comes in, they bring in the ecosystem together. With them. So that's good news. Number two, they are a very large player. And honestly, the markets are a bit different. We are not only going to be concentrating on memory, as I just mentioned earlier. We are looking at other ICs. In fact, we are designing an IC ourselves as of right now via a collaboration within India itself so that the IP stays here. Obviously, it goes out of India for tape out, which basically means uh, it goes to a fab for the actual wafer to be built. And then again, comes back to India for manufacturing. So we are not only concentrating on the memory space. And thirdly, today, when you look at the packaging industry, there are, whether you take Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Korea, Taiwan, and uh, you know China as well, there are multiple players within this industry who are doing packaging. So there is space for a lot of us today. Yes, we've probably you know, been one of the first few to get started. That helps us, yes. It has its own you know, advantages and disadvantages, but there cannot be anything better than Micron coming in, I would say. Great. Varun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Moody's Investor Ratings and Other Financial News Major news last week, rating agency Moody's Investor Services reaffirmed the Government of India's credit rating at BAA3 and the outlook, it said, remains stable. 
The affirmation and stable outlook are driven by Moody's view that India's economy is likely to continue to grow rapidly by international standards, although potential growth has come down in the past 7 to 10 years, it said. Which also means that Moody's is not upgrading India's ratings further as many would have hoped or expected given the general bullishness elsewhere, particularly amongst international investment banks on India, as we've been reporting to you faithfully. The financial sector continues to strengthen, alleviating much of the economic and contingent liability risks that had previously driven down rating pressure, Moody said. The BAA3 rating and stable outlook also take into account a curtailment of civil society and political dissent compounded by rising domestic political risk, the agency said. Moody's expects India's economic growth to outpace all other G20 economies through at least the next two years driven by domestic demand. In turn, high growth by international standards will support a gradual increase in currently low income levels, which will contribute to economic strength, said Moody's. The government's ongoing emphasis on infrastructure development, mirrored in the increasing share of capital expenditure in the union budgets, has led to a tangible improvement in logistics performance and the quality of trade and transport related infrastructure, Moody's said last week. India's fiscal strength remains a key weakness in the sovereign credit profile, balancing high economic strength, Moody's also said. And on to the stock markets, the BSE Sensex closed at 64,949 points on Friday, that's down 202 points, while the Nifty 50 ended at 19,310, down 55 points. All this, of course, is just to give you a sense on where we left off last week and where we could, of course, pick up this week. And Geo Financial Services, the financial subsidiary of Mukesh Ambani controlled conglomerate Reliance Industries, will list on the stock exchanges today. That's August 21st, 2023. Reliance spun off JFS or Geo Financial Services introducing it to the market with a valuation of around 20 billion dollars at the time at that point also there was little or no business in the company except as i understand for some treasury income food inflation hits the urban poor urban poor have been the most impacted by a 15 month high consumer price inflation level in july crystal market intelligence and analytics said last week poorest segment in urban areas faced the highest inflation rate in july said a note from the agency released days after official data said that the headline inflation had accelerated to 7.44% for july The poorest segment in both urban and rural areas faced a higher inflation burden than their high income counterparts as food inflation accelerated sharply. Speaking of food inflation, which we've been tracking quite closely, including vegetable prices which are now at a 37% inflation level and pulses which are your dals at 13%. Did you know that spices are also up around 22%? Yes, spices are getting spicier. tomatoes onions and now spices it does not get tougher for indian households to return to the urban poor the poorest segment in urban areas faced a higher burden than their counterparts in rural areas as both food and fuel inflation were higher in the former than the latter i reached out to deepthi deshpande director and principal economist at crisil to get some additional insights on these raging inflation levels that we are seeing and what could change and when So inflation for the urban poor has been high for the last couple of months in fact with this number in July it jumped significantly higher and in fact if you look at some of the early data coming in for August it suggests that inflation for the urban poor could stay stubbornly high this month as well mainly because of the factors that have been driving it 
So, you know, in fact, at 8.5%, which is the uh, inflation for the open poor, it's the highest rate that they've seen since December 2019. So when we look at some of the disaggregated data, there are three factors which seem to be pushing this number where it is. First is the sharp increase in prices of vegetables, which is much higher than what the rural counterparts have faced in July. To give some numbers, inflation rate for vegetables in the urban areas was about 41.6% in July versus 34.6% or so in rural India. And somewhere in between was the weighted average that is computed for all India at 37.3%. Second, if you look at inflation rates for eggs and pulses, even those were higher in the urban areas versus the rural. Now, we do not have enough information on further disaggregates and what leads to those prices, but transportation charges could have a role to play perhaps here. If you leave out food, for instance, among other things, you also have non-alcoholic beverages, footwear, fuel and transportation costs, etc., which also are seeing higher inflation in open areas. Now, there's a strong possibility that, you know, a fairly robust growth in uh, open areas this year, led by services sector, is keeping the demand and hence price pressure high for some of these non-food items. So as long as this continues and as long as inflation tends to be high in some of these categories, we could see higher inflation for the urban poor compared to their rural counterparts. Right. So you're saying the price demand is really coming from people who can afford it and are willing to and therefore are paying more, which in turn is affecting maybe those who can't fully afford it or cannot pay the same kind of prices. Perhaps, yes. Okay. So what happens when there is consistently high food inflation? I mean, is there, uh, I'm sure this has happened before, particularly in the urban context. Yeah, I mean, say typically a spike in inflation, you know, which is short-lived can easily be ignored by policymakers, especially monetary policy. And to that extent, even households or manufacturers are willing to ignore that. But if inflation, especially coming in from, say, items like fuel or even food inflation, starts becoming persistent, it may start impacting my expectation on what kind of inflation rates are going to come by. So for instance, food is a high-frequency purchase item. If a buyer goes to purchase it and sees a high inflation rate every couple of days or high prices every couple of days, it influences her or his inflation expectations and therefore wage expectations. So to simply put it, if I have inflation that is high and persistent for a long period of time, an employee would want to demand a salary hike at least to cover that inflation rate. Now, when that happens, it further feeds into inflation and becomes a lot more, you know, general in nature, keeping overall inflation high for a while. Coming to the current context, consistently high food inflation basically threatens the turn that the monetary policy could take in the coming days, in the sense that monetary policy would want to keep interest rates higher for longer than start easing. And despite this being a supply-side shock. So now, when you look at food inflation, basically two sets of policymakers need to play a role here. And in this case, because it's a supply-side inflation, I think most of the heavy lifting will have to be done by the government or fiscal policy by releasing food stocks, allowing for imports, etc. All the things that can help increase domestic supply per se. And uh, if you look at the coming months, again, if you were to look back in history and again, look forward, what's your sense? How long does it usually ease out? Like, for example, we're already hearing about tomato prices coming down and maybe other food prices as well. Right. 
So I think you know right now, given the pressures from vegetable inflation, uh, seem to be transient because it's a short crop and new supplies will start entering uh, the markets in one to two months. The worry, however, is on food items like cereals, that's rice and wheat, or pulses, mainly items like tor and milk, and even milk, where inflation has been in double digits for a couple of months. And although given the government's uh, intervention, inflation there may soften, it may not come down as much. Because a large part of the high inflation pressures are because output was affected either uh, due to, you know, weather disturbances uh, domestically or globally, etc. So I think price pressures there might stay. So we will see a hump, the hump will soften, but it's unlikely to soften considerably and reach the RBI's uh, inflation target of 4%, at least in the ongoing fiscal Right. And last point, I mean, uh, and you mentioned this in passing earlier. So the high income segment, which which is what your report says in urban areas, face the lowest inflation burden because food has a relatively low share in their basket. Now, I guess that's, yeah, it is seems logical as well. But if this segment is not facing high inflation and they're likely to remain silent, does it mean that the issue also therefore does not get as well addressed as it should be? Um, no, not really. I think over time, the inflation pressure is going to become a lot more serious overall. Because if you look at the kind of inflation that uh, you know Indian consumers have been facing, not just now, but over the last two to three years, it's affecting most of the essentials category. You know, be it food, be it fuel, be it other essentials like uh, healthcare, education, etc. So what that's doing is that it's forcing me as a consumer, regardless of the income segment I belong to, it's forcing me as a consumer to spend a lot more on these essentials, leaving relatively less to be spent on other discretionary items per se. So I think overall, it can start having an impact on growth per se over a long period of time. So I think that's what makes this concern uh, something to be looked at. Right. Uh, Deepti, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govind. Meanwhile, the most active trader in the vegetables and cereals market, among others, is the government itself. I can almost imagine a war room meeting at Krishi Bhavan in Delhi, home to the Ministry of Agriculture and Farmers' Welfare, where prices of onions, tomatoes and various spices, since we just spoke about it, are being bandied back and forth, culminating quite rapidly in various duties being slapped on or exports being banned. Now, this, of course, could be a normal day at work at the Ministry of Agriculture. But the speed and alacrity of our tariff-based responses across agriculture products from rice to wheat and now onions seems a little like, well, shooting from the hip. News now coming in is that the government via the National Cooperative Consumers Federation of India will sell onions to consumers at a subsidized rate of 25 rupees per kg through retail outlets and mobile vans from Monday. Earlier, it imposed a 40% duty on onion exports on Saturday. So, in general, to come back to the war room at Krishi Bhavan, for sure stress levels rise and will keep rising as India's festival season, which starts in a few months and goes into full gear, comes closer. Speaking of inflation, for the cumulative period till the 18th of August, India's southwest monsoon is down 6% below the long period average or 3% below the long period average of the last week compared with a 9% surplus last year for the same period. Now, this is quite interesting because you can see the swings between how the monsoon has been moving and the way we've been reporting it as well. Now, region-wise distribution shows an uneven distribution with only the northwestern region receiving a higher rainfall, while all other regions have received scanty rainfall. 
Now, this uneven spread of rainfall has also impacted the Kharif sowing, which is marginally up 0.1% from last year, according to research from BOB or Bank of Baroda. With sowing season about to end, pulses sowing has declined further. Pulses, as you know, are your Turdal and Uraddal and so on. And the impact of this might be visible on inflation, says BOB Research. However, rice sowing has logged in at a much higher level than last year. So that's the good news for now. Stay tuned. Speaking of food inflation, not surprisingly, agriculture stocks are beating their global peers this quarter. Exposure to this sector is a good hedge for inflation, some investors told Bloomberg. An index tracking total returns from select agriculture producers has outperformed the broader MSCI World Index by about 3 percentage points since the start of July, data compiled by Bloomberg shows. The industry has outperformed as a gauge of food commodity prices posted its biggest gain in 16 months last month. Some exposure is advised to food stocks similar to what is usually given to oil as a form of insurance, an energy analyst told Bloomberg. Investing in agriculture names is perhaps a good way to hedge against climate change and certain geopolitical risks, he said. A gender battle ends. A long-standing succession and ownership battle within Chennai's Murugappa family triggered by Vali Arunachalam has ended. The Murugappa family owns a spate of listed and well-known companies like Cholamandalam Finance, Coromandel International, EID Parry, Tube Investments and Sakti Gears. Vali Arunachalam is the great-granddaughter of Murugappa Group founder Devan Bahadur A.M. Murugappa Chetiar, and she's also the second cousin to Murugappa Group's executive chairman M.M. Murugappan and cousin to former executive chairman A. Valayan. Arunachalam has been fighting a long-standing battle for recognition as her father's heir and has reportedly proposed her name for the directorship in the group's holding company, Ambadi Investments, three years ago in proportion to her holding, according to reports. The group has frowned on taking women on board, quite literally, going by reports and by acquisitions in the public domain by Ms. Arunachalam. The Murugappa group has apparently now agreed to settle the disputes between the family branch of the late MV Murugappan, that includes Vali Arunachalam and Velachi Murugappan on one side, and the rest of the family members on the other side, which arose post the demise of the late MV Murugappan. Along with settling these disputes, Vali Arunachalam's legal proceedings against the Murugappa family will be withdrawn, and the family members are committed to undertake the necessary transactions to effect the family arrangement within the next 90 days, the group said. Vali Arunachalam has a PhD in nuclear engineering from Texas A&M University and has worked in Texas Instruments and Motorola in the United States. She's also helped set up a leading-edge semiconductor fabrication plant in the United States and transferred technology to Europe and Asia and currently provides technical due diligence and advisory services for M&A, that's mergers and acquisitions, and high-technology equipment and product manufacturing companies all of which might come handy were she to embark on a fresh or a new semiconductor venture in India on her own for reasons we discussed quite elaborately earlier in today's show. Hmm, even the World Bank wants you to come back to work. The World Bank is asking staff to return to office. Predictably, this has led to some grumbling, although the development lender is giving employees more money for commuting and childcare. Ajay Banga, the new president of the Washington-based bank, is pushing ahead with plans to have employees work in the office for four days a week by September 5th. Banga took charge at the World Bank in June, so the new diktat has come in barely two months of his joining. Banga earlier worked at private equity firm General Atlantic and was president and CEO of Mastercard. 
We need greater interaction, collaboration and physical proximity, Banga and top officials apparently said in a memo. It will require us to sit around a table, meet new people in the halls, brainstorm ideas over lunch and bond over a coffee. Last week, Bloomberg reported that Amazon is cracking down on US workers who've ignored its return to office guidelines. Some US employees at Amazon received an email last week stating that they were not meeting the company's expectation of spending at least three days a week in office. Amazon is not the only employer clamping down on those shirking offices in favor of remote work. International Business Machines or IBM's Arvind Krishna, the CEO, said in May that promotions will be harder to come by for those who aren't in the office. Last week again, Zoom Video Communications, whose video conferencing software facilitated the switch to remote work during the COVID-19 pandemic, said employees who live near an office must be on site two days a week. The fact that Zoom was calling employees back was, of course, an interesting twist in the tale, given that its software was encouraging companies and their employees to do exactly the opposite. As we further ramp up on hybrid work, we've decided to make another change and end our no internal meeting Wednesdays, Zoom's CEO said in a memo. We move fast, and this effort has become more of a barrier to collaboration than it was intended. And as an increasingly global company, no internal meeting Wednesday creates a lack of clarity for Zoomies working across multiple time zones. This, of course, is from Zoom. And that's it from me for today. That's Monday. Have a great week ahead. And I do look forward to hearing from you with comments and feedback on govindraj at thecore.in or do reach out to us on any of our social profiles on LinkedIn or X, formerly known as Twitter. Have a great day. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>